Well, if you turn in 1 John to the second chapter, the 24th verse, he says, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Or if you have the message version, it says, goes deeper and deeper. And that's where the title comes from. We want to take a deep dive because what John talks about are three fundamental things that he just keeps circling. Number one, there's a truth of which we must acknowledge and believe. There's an obedience that God calls you to that is critical and important in shaping how you honor God and how you relate to people. And then third, there is a love of which God calls you to enter into and share in the body of Christ. And he cycles that over and over and over. And each time our hope is that we're going to go deeper and deeper with God. Why? Well, I would think we would all agree that candidly being shallow is not a good thing. No one wants to be called shallow. In fact, if you want to offend somebody, just say, you are such a shallow person. Uh, that's not <laughs> an encouragement. In fact, if somebody were to say that of you, it's kind of an indictment. A friend of mine who pastors a fairly large church, he one time told me, he goes, Mark, our church is a mile wide and an inch deep. He said, man, when we, when we studied our church, less than 10% of our people give regularly tithe. And he said, the fact is, we have a bunch of consumers and we can't figure out how to move them into any sense of maturity. And he said, I don't know what to do. We have a huge church. The momentum is, is great, but we're a mile wide and an inch deep. And he wasn't encouraging He was discouraged by that. Why? Because we don't like shallow. We like deep conversations. We like, if you're an investor, you want to have deep pockets. If you're a coach, you want to have a deep bench. The reality is we like deep. We don't like shallow. And that's what God is talking about here in the second chapter. He says, I want you to go deeper and deeper into these truths. And here's the principle. The deeper you go, the more it impacts the way you think and live and experience people. What John is talking about in this text, he starts off right away. He has a vision for us. I'll share it with you. It's given to us in verse 4. He says, we proclaim to you. And we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. That's what we long for. Our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. What John wants you to experience is not just a place to attend, but Relationships that are nourishing, that feed you deeper and more significantly than food. You've probably all had a conversation with somebody. Maybe you went out for dinner. And maybe you've had one of those conversations where the dinner went like three hours and you went from appetizer to dinner to dessert to let's find something else to order. And the reason you did that It's because that three-hour conversation felt like 30 minutes. You just got wrapped up in it. It was just like, man, this is what fellowship is meant to be. You've also had those conversations. You know where I'm going. 
that lasted 30 minutes and it felt like three hours or maybe three days. And you went through the appetizer. You didn't want to eat the meal. And when she came to you and said, would you like dessert? You blurted out, no. Can I have the check? What's the difference? What's the difference between one that goes three hours and it seems so short and another that goes so short and it seems so long? John talks about it and he calls it fellowship. Where does it begin? Interestingly, it doesn't begin horizontally. It begins vertically. That's where John starts. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, we proclaim concerning the word of life. And that life appeared. John says, if you want to have good relationships, deep relationships, it begins with God, not with a friend. It begins here. And he's writing to them, interestingly enough, and he comes out and he says, hey, we've touched him, we've seen him, we've heard him, we proclaim this to you. Why would John start there? He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about friendship. He's talking about having dinner with a person that lasts for three hours and it feels like 30 minutes. Why are you starting with God? Because your relationships horizontally are always going to be a reflection of your relationship vertically. If your relationship vertically is shallow, your relationships horizontally are going to be shallow. If your relationships vertically are undeveloped, if you don't have a developed relationship with God, if it's built upon impatience and kind of scarcity and quickness, then your relationships horizontally are always going to match the same. And that's why John begins. And he begins speaking to a group of people. Who are they? Well, these are individuals. John writes somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. That's approximately 50 to 60 years after Jesus. So Jesus has died, rose from the dead, walked on the water, did all of that stuff 50, 60 years ago. The average generation back then was about 40 years. So that, what does that mean? It means that the vast majority of people that John is writing to did not see Jesus. They didn't witness him. They didn't witness the resurrection. They didn't witness, they didn't have the last supper with him. They didn't see the walking on the water. None of that. And so what John is writing to is a group of what we call second or third generation people. And John has a conviction, and I agree with it. Second generation Christians always, always must become first generation Christians. If you have children in your family, they can only walk on your faith for a given time. At some point, that faith has to become their own. My friend Haddon, his daughter, when she went off to college, she said, Daddy, when I left home, I left with your faith. When I came back, I came with my own. That's the movement. And John is writing to these people. They hadn't touched Jesus. They hadn't seen Jesus. But they had to ask a question. That is, I got to be honest with God. Do I believe that Jesus really lived? Do I believe that he appeared? Do I believe that he was one with the Father? And that he's appeared to us? Do I believe that? 
Because if I don't, that's going to affect the way I relate to people here on this earth. If I think this whole thing of Christ is made up, if I think he was a spirit being, if I don't think he was really in the flesh, if I don't think the resurrection really occurred, and if I don't think that there is a God who has a real standard of life that came to this earth and proclaimed the truth, then everything about my horizontal relationships are going to change. My definition of truth, my convictions about it, John was writing to them and he said this, my friends, you have a question that you have to wrestle with. Do you believe that Jesus was real? And he comes out of the shoots and he says to them, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eyes. We've looked at with our own hands. We even touched him. This is the person we proclaim Jesus really lived. Now we're way down the road. We're not at the third generation level. We're not the fourth. We're at the 50, 60, 70th generation. We're way down there. But we still have the same question we have to wrestle with. Do you believe Jesus really lived? And it's a question, we don't have time for the full development of it, but it's a question that you really deserve to give full attention to. Because there's going to be all kinds of people who make suggestions Jesus was a real person but he wasn't really God or Jesus was a spirit he wasn't really in the flesh and there's four things that I go back to every time when I want to wrestle with this question do I believe that Jesus Christ really lived and the first one is in many ways one of the most reliable and it's simply this this manuscript this thing called the bible The manuscripts supporting the reality of Jesus are stronger than the support of virtually any other historical person in the world. We all believe General Patton lived. We believe Churchill lived. We believe Abraham Lincoln lived. Not because we saw them, not because we witnessed them, not because we touched them, but because history documents their reality. And the manuscripts of scripture document the reality of Jesus, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And there's more manuscript evidence for Christ than any other historical person. But it's not just internal arguments. There's non-biblical meaning non-God-inspired. When Carrie and I made uh, our our trip to to Jerusalem, to Israel, one of the impacts and imprints that it left on me was the number of writers outside of the scripture, Josephus, Tacitus, and others, that wrote profusely about Christ, about his life, about his death, about a resurrection. And the documentation outside of scripture, not the internal argument of the Bible, but the external argument that was absolutely voluminous in the number of people who wrote about and supported the reality that Jesus really lived. Third, if you look at the worldwide movement, you will notice the Christianity is the only faith that has grown larger outside of its point of origin. All other religions are largest within their point of origin. Why do I note that? Because Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses. 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he predicted and he prophesied that his kingdom would expand. Matthew 11, his kingdom would expand and forceful people would take hold of it. He prophesied something that hasn't happened in any other religion, but did in Christianity. And lastly, why do I believe he really lived? It's because whenever you write a date, 2022, 2023, what is the point of reference? 2022 years from what? Christ's life. He was so significant in our time frame that the entire world sets their, if you will, annual clock because of his life. Why is that important? Because if I don't believe he lived, then he's not going to shape the way I live and relate to people. But I also have to believe something that John describes, and that is that he is light. This is the message that we've heard from him, verse 5. And we declare to you, God is light, and in him there's no darkness. That's an interesting phrase. I wonder why John used it. Why didn't he describe and say, God is holy. God is almighty. God is all of these things. Why did he use light? It's rather abstract. What is he trying to say? That Jesus is a wave of electromagnetic power? No. If you were to look up the definition of light, what would you find? You'd find a lot of things like an electromagnetic radiation. But you're also going to find usually number two, sometimes number one. What is light? Something that makes vision possible. Let me read it awkwardly, what I think John was saying. This is the message that we have heard from him. And we declare to you, God is truth and makes everything visible. It's by God's light that we see everything. It's by God's standard that we understand truth. It's by God's standard that we understand purity. John says there's two things that you have to come to grips with. Do you believe there's a truth that is revealed in Christ? Do you believe that he existed? And that he was God in the flesh. If you don't, then there is no God that you have to respond to. There is no God who will do anything in your life. And you're on your own. Go out and have at it. And it's mere poker exchange. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. I'll help you if you help me. And that's the extent of the motivation of the vast majority of relationships. But if Christ really lived... And he really comes to bring truth. Then there's a truth about us that's important to look at. And John says, not only do you have to be honest about God, but you got to be honest about yourself. Number one, the darkness wants to alter the truth about God. They don't like God. They don't like that he's pure and they don't like that he's holy. Because if he's pure and he's holy, he has a standard. And so John says, if you do not confess that you're a sinner, if you don't believe you've sinned, then you make God out to be a liar. You become a liar. You deceive yourself. In in what way am I a liar? And in what way am I altering the truth about God? Well, the reality is, if I say that I've not sinned, 
that I have no sin in my life, then what I'm saying is there's no God who is holy, who has made any standard, who has any expectations of me. In fact, I've turned God into kind of a really, really nice Santa Claus that is sitting up there in heaven cheering for me, but expects nothing of you. The darkness wants to alter the truth about God. They want God to be this almighty power that is simply at the disposal of our request. They want God to be an almighty power that has no opinion of what it means to get to heaven. At the end, hey, it's a big party. Let's let everyone in. He has no standards. He's kind of like a DA in California. Why would we ever expect anything of anyone? I mean, let's just let them all out. Have fun. And that's really, interestingly enough, tragically enough, that's really where our culture is moving. We have no ability to say, that was wrong. You need to be punished. Including a lot of parents. I've talked with a number of teachers recently and and one of the things they're just shocked of and and we shouldn't be tragically is that they come and and their kids have never done anything wrong. It's like, no, that, that my child never acts that way. No, not at all. Just four times a day. And they're only in school half of the day. We want to alter God. Why? Because we want to live in a world where God has no expectation. But when John says he's light, it means he reveals things. He declares things. He is the truth. And God does have an opinion about everything. The darkness wants to alter the truth about ourselves. It's not just about God, but it's about us. Donald Miller was describing in one of his books a relationship he had with this young lady who was an atheist. Over time, they would meet, and he was just telling her about Christ. And she was edging towards kind of this desire of placing her faith in Christ. And Donald said this. He said, the beginning of your relationship with God must be with confession. If you're going to take a step of faith... It requires a confession. What is that confession? That God, there is something called sin that separates you and me. And I can't bridge it. That's what communion is all about. It's the acknowledgement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, as the scripture describes, the wages of that sin is death. She looked at Donald and she said, you know, I was good with you up to this point of Christ loving me and God having a wonderful plan for my life. But here's the problem. And she said to Donald, she said it this way. I don't believe I need a God to forgive me because I don't believe I've sinned. Donald went on to write, he said, that's what's wrong with the world today. No one wants to own anything. They don't want to own their behavior. They don't want to own their offense against God. And when they do that, when they take that position, 
And maybe they'll admit, oh, you know, I've made some mistakes in my life, but I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Trump. I'm not Biden. Whoever you dislike, who you think somehow is worse than you, becomes, if you will, the rationale for why. I think Jesus kind of overdid it when he died on the cross. I'm not sure I really needed his blood. And that darkness, therefore, demands a heavy price in our relationships. Why? Because it forces you into hiding. It forces you to deny the reality of your own life. And it forces you to put a cheap glaze on your fragile and hidden heart so that others think well of you. The Bible in Proverbs 26, 23 makes this statement. Insincere talk that hides what you're really thinking is like a fine glaze on a cheap pot. A person that can't own up to the fact that God, I am a sinner. There's a chasm between you and me that can never be bridged by my efforts. And the person that either can't acknowledge that or somehow comes to the conclusion like this friend of Donald's, I don't really believe I need God to forgive me. That person has taken God and redefined God, redefined truth, simply so that they have permission to drive their own life. John says, if that's where you're at, My friends, your entire life is going to be one of hiding. You're going to be fearful that people get to know you. You're going to be protective in what you share about your own life. You're going to be guarded in what people get to know about you. And if that's the case, you're not going to enter into fellowship. You're going to attend a church and you're going to feel like nobody knows you. And it's true, they don't. And you're going to attend a church and you're going to wonder periodically, maybe when somebody gave you a glare that you didn't like or somebody didn't shake your hand that you thought should have. And you're going to ask a question. I wonder if I left, if they would even miss me. And here's the tragic part. If you left, they might have to say, we don't know you. It's not that we didn't want to. It's that you live with a mask Because you aren't honest about God and you aren't honest about yourself. And if you live that way, your fellowship will be shallow. Your 30 minute dinners will feel like three hours. And when church service is over, you'll be one of the first ones to leave. But John has a vision. I write this to make our joy complete. If you want deep relationships, and really all of us do, sometimes we're afraid of them, but if you want deep relationships, verse seven says you have to choose to live in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin.
What does it look like to walk in the light? Does it mean you turn on these bright lights that make you sweat? Well, it does mean that you walk in a light that allows you to see. First thing I think it means in this text is to number one is to walk honestly before God. And there's two things that this text tells me about God. Number one is that God, I have to come to you, confess. If I confess to you, you're faithful and you're just, you will forgive me and you will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But that's where the fellowship begins. If I come and I be, I'm honest with God, Lord, man, my heart, there is miles away from you. And the only way, God, I'm going to bridge that gap is if, Jesus, you died on that cross for me. My relationship with God, just like yours, begins with confession. Donald is right. It begins with a confession. God, I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. And I need you to be the one that bridges that gap. I need you. I need to confess my sin and trust that you're faithful and you're just. Faithful and you're just. You will take my sin and put it on your son so that I could be forgiven. But my friends, that's only half of what this text teaches me about being honest before God. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what's the other part of this? And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When does that happen? Can I ask? When does that purification occur? And is it a point in time? Is it singular in its effect? Or is it an ongoing and it's a regular phrase that it continues to purify us? You see, when I walk in fellowship with God, humbly confessing and coming to him, what's the impact of this communion? What's the impact of my relationship with God? The scripture says it is like a filtration system that God puts on me and he continues to purify and purify, eradicating the effects, the consequences of sin in my life. A lot of us in this room have no problem coming and describing ourselves as sinners. But fewer of you, and I think this is critical, if I were to sit down with you and I was to take you out for dinner and we were to just see one-on-one and I was to ask you, tell me who you really are. Tell me who you really are. Oh, you'd get through, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a, a student, I'm a woman. No, 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 go deeper. Tell me who you really are. Why well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And your definition of yourself would not be what the scripture describes. Because when you enter into a relationship with God, the blood of Jesus is powerful. It is so powerful that it cleanses you and it purifies you and it gives you a new heart and it gives you a new mind and you're indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ has taken up residence in you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you and that which is dead is now alive. 
That which was dead, your soul, your spirit, that which had no life is now come alive. And there's a resurrection in your soul. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as you walk with him, continues to cleanse you and to renew you. And that's the basis of fellowship. It's that when I am with you, I am not with a person who's dead. I'm with a person who's alive in Christ. I'm not with a person whose identity is a dead sinner. It is rather a living child of God, fully indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of you, when you wake up in the morning, your identity gives you permission to sin because you see yourself as a sinner. You describe yourself as a sinner. You define yourself as a sinner rather than what the scripture describes you as. Ephesians 5.13 says, when things are brought out into the light, nature is clearly revealed. And what's the light? And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies you over and over and over from all sin. My friends, if you want fellowship, look into the eyes of a person and see them for who they really are. They're a living, breathing child of God. They may vote differently than you. They may live economically different than you. But you're looking at a person whom a miracle has occurred in their life. You're looking at a person who Christ indwells. The Holy Spirit is sealed. You're looking at a sacred person. And that's the basis of your fellowship. Walk honestly before God. And secondly is walk honestly with each other. And that means that I don't have to live with a protection. I don't have to try and convince you that I am somebody. I don't have to shield myself. I don't have to hide myself. I can live transparently. I can live openly. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, When things are brought out into the light, nature is clearly revealed. The best fellowship you'll ever have is when you're with a person who you feel completely safe. Not unchallenged, of course not. You don't want that kind of relationship. You don't want a person who's your best friend who says, hey, play to live last. No, you want a person who's going to challenge you and encourage you. But at the end of the day, who will get your back, who believes in you, who believes that the power of God has taken up residence in your life. And when they look into your eyes, they have the deepest affection an affirmation. I believe in you. As my friend always used to say, Mark, I believe the Holy Spirit in you. If we want to have deep relationships, you have to live in the light. It means you have to take the risk to trust that what God really says he's done and to believe that what God has for you is real. It means that if you want to get close to God and others, you have to choose to walk in the light. Believe what is true about God, 
but also believe what is true about you. And when you do, Carrie and I, the other night, we went for dinner with some friends. These are 40-year type friends. When I eat, tragically, I usually eat in about 10 minutes. And that's if I slow myself down. So for me to sit for three hours, my wife looks at me and said, man, who are you? I entered into a conversation with a person who I've known for 40 years and he's known me. One of the most genuinely loving, God-inspired people I know. When you've tasted that, like John, you plead, I write this to make our joy complete. Doesn't make sense, does it? You'd think he would say, we write this to make your joy complete. But let me help you understand, I think, what he's trying to say. When I was uh, studying back in Boston, um, it's my, my common practice is to go to locals and say, hey, where would you take a good friend who's coming into town out for dinner? Please don't give me anything that is a national brand. That's a sin to go to one of those places. So this one lady said, oh, you want to go up to Gloucester? And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And if I'm not, please forgive me. You want to go to Gloucester? And when you go, she said, you're going to drive up to this place. She gave me the address. And she, when you drive up, it's going to look like a mobile home that encountered a tornado. So don't be turned away. This place is uglier than ever. But go in and eat the food. You'll, you'll be delighted. I walked in. Um, I'm from the West Coast. Um, scallops, you know, quarter. I mean, these scallops, good night. You had to have a wheelbarrow to carry these things. I've never seen them so large. And, and I mean, the fish and chips, I mean, I just wanted to stay there forever and die right in that place. When I left, I, I was back there studying on my own. And, and then when we, we graduated, and I don't normally like going through graduation, so you have to put a dress on. I don't like that. And... Um, <laughs> And just the whole idea of sitting there for three hours and waiting to get this. It's like, just send me the diploma in the mail. It's good. But then I thought, if we go back there for the graduation, I get to take my wife to the most insanely glorious place to eat in the world. Honey, I'm going to go to graduation. And once again, she said, who are you? We went back there. My mom went and my sister, we walked into this hole in the ground. I, I mean, I was like a kid at Christmas. Not because I was going to eat there. Because I was getting ready to share something of delight with people I love. I got greater joy in that moment watching them enjoy this evening than me being there again. That's John's point. When you've sat with a person for three hours and you realized what God touched most deeply was not my stomach, but my soul. You long for people to experience that. For me, the church is a beautiful place. It's not been easy. 
On any given week, I can get a few emails that say they would rather I die than live. But for me, the church is just a glorious place of fellowship. There's no place I would rather be than right here. And there's no group of people that I'd rather be than with you. For me, it's, it's just a taste of heaven. And when this place is that way for you, like John, I say, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. By what? Discovering the life of fellowship. It's a risk. You can't be the first one out the door. You have to be honest about God. You have to be honest about yourself. And when you are, you'll find yourself in three-hour conversations that feel like 30 minutes. You'll run to this place. You'll run to these people because they feed your soul.